I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956, episode 1.14. Today we've got a good few things on our plate. We're going to examine the final crushing of the Hungarian Revolution and the impact it had on the Soviet bloc countries, as well as the Chinese. Late October to early November 1956 was awash with activity and had the events in Budapest taken place the following year, perhaps, the West would likely have given it more attention. As it stood, though, the events in the Suez Canal dominated the war rooms of London, Paris, Washington and Tel Aviv, and because of this distraction, Moscow was able to crush Budapest under its boot with far less revulsion across the world than would otherwise have been the case. Last time we saw how the incredible state of affairs in Budapest had come to be. Hungary was apparently on course to pursue an independent policy. Hungarians would be permitted to determine how they would govern themselves. Yet, unfortunately, this euphoric victory, this ability to express oneself which had been suppressed for so long, could not last. A combination of factors, including Soviet horror at the massacre in the Hungarian Communist Party HQ in Republic Square on the 31st of October, the infectious spread of the Hungarian message through the satellite states, and the perceived need to recoup Soviet prestige, all played a role in persuading Khrushchev that a reinvasion of Budapest would be necessary. In the first few days of November, as the Soviet armed columns had approached and the tanks had rolled towards their destination, Imre Naja's government tied itself in panicked knots as it tried to figure out the best solution. Machiavellian levels of Soviet deception and lies, conducted by the Soviet ambassador to Hungary, Yuri Andropov, had effectively paralysed the Hungarian response but Naj was always certain of where he stood. Resistance to the overwhelming Soviet hammer would be fruitless under the circumstances. It only made sense to treat with the Soviets and negotiate the best outcome if at all possible. If negotiation was impossible, at least the world would know Hungary no longer abided by the Soviet instruments of control and vassalage. The Warsaw Pact had been renounced, and a fledgling democracy, including Social Democrats and Peasant Party delegates, had taken root. As much as he feared the outcome and deplored further violence, Naj wanted desperately to believe that the Soviet Union would not act so cynically, so barbarically, against one of its former allies. He was to be proved mistaken, tragically so. We last left Naj's government earnestly awaiting the news of Pal Malator's trip to a secure Soviet base for the sake of further Soviet-Hungarian talks. 
Malager was Naja's minister for defence, so it was vital he was returned safe and sound, but in the atmosphere of rumoured betrayal and falsehoods, nobody could be guaranteed of anything anymore. It is to this scene, then, in the Soviet base of Tolok, at 10pm on the evening of the 3rd of November 1956, that we now take you. The atmosphere was tense, on a level unfamiliar to those that sat in the stuffy room. Palmeliter had led his two peers to talks, with the Soviet general Mikhail Malinin sat opposite him with two of his own men. The two parties talked terms, with each side knowing full well that the presence of Soviet soldiers around Budapest would be the deciding factor. Malitor couldn't very well ignore the overwhelming arrival of Soviet military force, but he still expected to be treated as any other dignitary of any other country would expect to have been treated. One of the last people Malitor had spoken to was his 24-year-old wife Judith, who later recalled the last conversation they had together before his arrest. She said, I implored him not to go. It was a scary idea to me to leave Budapest at that time in the evening to go to a Soviet barracks. I knew that the Soviets had entrenched themselves around the city. He had told me that himself, so I was scared. He became annoyed and ended up speaking to me in a military kind of way. You've got to understand that things will go by the diplomatic rules, he had said. The last sentence I heard from him as a free man was, You've got to understand that wife and family don't matter here. I have to go there, even if it costs me my life, because the country expects my assistance. Under Naj's strict instructions, Melita was to phone his office every half hour to show that he was alright. This he did up to 11.30pm, to the point that Naj's aide, relieved, went to bed. In the building, Melita's initial optimism seemed justified, as his bodyguard recalled, Everything appeared to go off perfectly in the office where the talks were taking place. At least, that was our impression in the antechamber from the noise of the conversation we could hear. But this calm could not and did not last. Much to the Soviet general's surprise and irritation, just before midnight a dozen armed policemen entered the room and aimed their guns at Melita and his peers. At the head of the Soviet policemen was the head of the KGB, Ivan Serov. I'm placing you all under arrest, Serov simply said. Oh, Melita replied. That's it then. Melita's bodyguard watched the event unfold through a crack in the door and grasped at his gun, but Melita knew what he was thinking. The boss called out, Stop, it's useless to resist, and I obeyed orders, his bodyguard recalled. With the arrest of Melita and his staff, the Soviets had taken their first concrete step against the Hungarian regime, but they had also achieved a strategic coup by effectively cutting off the military head of Naja's government. Without Melita's organisational and strategic skills, the Hungarian resistance to the Soviets would be far easier to overcome. Almost on cue then, a few minutes after midnight on the 4th of November, with the Hungarian defence minister absent, the Soviets began their envelopment of Budapest. 150,000 soldiers and 2,500 tanks headed what was deemed Operation Whirlwind, named for the Soviet leadership's desire to see Hungary crushed within only three days. Any longer it was feared and substantial Western advice or aid could materialise. The Soviets need not have worried though, for the day after their invasion of Budapest had begun, the British landed over 600 paratroopers in Egypt as per their original plans. 
nothing, not even the aggressive takeover of a desperate Soviet satellite, could dissuade the Anglo-French plotters from moving ahead with their plans for Suez. And this was because Suez was the culmination of several months' worth of planning. Such plans couldn't be compromised to account for the Soviet Union's internal problems. It is worth considering the fact that many viewed Budapest still as an internal Soviet problem, notwithstanding Naj's previous pronouncements of Hungary's departure from the Warsaw Pact. Technically, according to the international legalities of the day, Hungary was being invaded by an aggressive foreign power. This was how Naj's government and Naj himself saw it, but the West was not so quick to adapt their thinking to the new Hungarian circumstances. Perhaps they would have been had events in Egypt not occupied so much of their attentions, as Western observers and media organs attempted to paint a picture of the Egyptian government and the Anglo-French-Israeli angle there. Painting such angles was a complex enough exercise without also having to spend words on what was happening in Budapest. Many British, French and American readers would only find out several days after the event what had actually happened in Hungary, but such events appeared far more detached from their sphere of interest than those in Egypt, where Anglo-French soldiers had acted and American diplomacy had been kicked into high gear. The chaos and confusion caused by the Soviet invasion in the early hours of the 4th of November were not eased by Naj's pained response. Unwilling to sanction an official declaration of war, since he knew that the result would be the same either way, Naj was caught in a kind of crisis. Having failed to believe till the final moment that the Soviets would do the unthinkable, Naj was now confronted with a problem which he was not equipped to solve. The Hungarian army had no leader. It had insufficient weapons. It was outnumbered, outgunned and devoid of foreign support. He agonised for hours over what to do, as he was greeted with more and more distressing and doom-laden memos and phone calls from his peers. His deputy suggested making a radio broadcast before it was too late, and this he did at 4.20am on the 4th of November, saying, This is Premier Imre Naj speaking. Today at daybreak... Soviet troops attacked our capital with the obvious intent of overthrowing the legal democratic Hungarian government. Our troops are in combat, the government is at its post. I notify the people of our country and the entire world of this fact. This announcement was repeated in several languages over the next few hours, before Budapest's radio station was taken down by the Soviets. In the meantime, Naj had taken refuge in the Yugoslav embassy, a fact we'll examine in a bit, but his peers continued to communicate through the remaining radio sets they could find. One message of particular note was left in the parliament building by Bibo Istvan, the last member of Hungary's cabinet government. The message was written and sent to various embassies and institutions around the world, as many as Istvan could find, with the title For Freedom and Truth. Thanks to Wikipedia's open source files, we actually have a copy of what Bibo said in the afternoon of the 4th of November, when Soviet pincers were closing in on his position. Bibo began with a statement outlining the position of the different members of government who had since gone dark and thus left him as the sole member of the government to still be in any kind of position to communicate with the world. Bibo then continued, Hungary does not wish to pursue an anti-Soviet policy. On the contrary, Hungary's full intent is to live in the community of free Eastern European nations which want to organise themselves on the principles of liberty, justice and freedom from exploitation. Before the entire world, I also reject the slanderous accusation that the glorious Hungarian revolution has been despoiled by fascist or anti-Semitic excess. 
the entire Hungarian nation, without class or denominational differences, participated in the struggle. It was moving and marvellous to see the humane, wise and discretionary behaviour of the insurgents, and how they were able to limit their outrage only towards the oppressive foreign army and the local executioner commandos. The recently formed Hungarian government had the ability to put an end to the incidents of street justice that repeatedly occurred during the last few days, as it would have been able to halt the emergence of the unarmed arch-conservative political elements. The claim that a large foreign army had to be called or recalled into the country to accomplish these objectives is both frivolous and cynical. On the contrary, the very presence of this army is the major cause of the current tensions and disturbances. I admonish the Hungarian people to not consider the occupying army or their puppet government as a legal authority and to utilise against them every means of passive resistance except those that would endanger the essential supplies and public utilities of Budapest. I cannot issue an order for armed resistance. I have been in the government for only one day and I am not informed about the military situation. It would thus be irresponsible of me to risk the priceless blood of Hungarian youth. The Hungarian people have already sacrificed enough of their blood to show the world their devotion to freedom and truth. Now it's up to the world powers to demonstrate the four of principles embodied in the United Nations Charter and the strength of the world's freedom-loving peoples. I appeal to the major powers and the United Nations to make a wise and courageous decision to protect the freedom of our subjugated nation. Sending such messages of solidarity, hope and defiance was all very well, and it certainly is a poignant message to read all these years later, but before long the new government of Hungary, headed by Janusz Kadar, which called itself the Hungarian Revolutionary Workers' Peasant Government, as if they didn't need enough socialist names, they had taken control of the radio, and they attempted to present their own message to the country. The complaints against the slander in Bibo's message stemmed from Kadar's attempts, working on Soviet instructions, to present Naj's regime as bloodthirsty, counter-revolutionary and, of course, fascist. We'll see how far these buzzwords were carried along, whether or not the authorities in question believe them, but it is worth noting how Janusz Kadar, once a committed member of Naj's government, presented this state of affairs in his first radio address. He said, Attention, attention, comrade Janusz Kadar speaking. The Hungarian revolutionary worker-peasant government has been formed. We know that many questions are still awaiting a solution in our country and that we shall have to cope with many difficulties. The life of the workers is still far from what it should be in a country building socialism. While progress was made during the last 12 years, the Rakoshi Gero clique committed many grave mistakes and gravely violated legality. All this rightly made workers discontent. The reactionaries are now seeking their own selfish ends. They raised their hands against our people's democratic regime, which means that they want to return the factories and enterprises to the capitalists and the land to the big landowners. Miklos Horty's gendarmes and prison wardens and the representatives of the hated and cursed oppressive system have already set out to sit on the neck of the people. If they had won, they would not have brought freedom, well-being and democracy, but slavery, misery, unemployment and ruthless new oppression. Exploiting the mistakes committed during the building of our people's democratic system, the reactionary elements have misled many honest workers, and particularly the youth, who joined the movement out of honest and patriotic intentions. Hungarians, brothers, patriots, soldiers and citizens, we must put an end to the excesses of the counter-revolutionary elements. The hour of action is here. We are going to defend the power of the workers and peasants and the achievements of the people's democracy. We will bring about order, security and calm in our country. 
The interest of the people and the nation is that they should have a strong government, a government capable of leading the country out of its grave situation. This is why we have formed the Hungarian Revolutionary Worker-Peasant Government. Kadar then continued in his radio address by listing 15 points, serving almost as polar opposites to the 16 points of the student demonstration from the 23rd of October, before concluding with not a hint of irony that It is for this that the Hungarian revolutionary worker-peasant government is fighting and is calling on every unselfish son and daughter of the Hungarian fatherland. Workers, brothers, truth is on our side. We will win. These rhetorical devices were not merely for public show. It may seem unlikely to us that the Soviets acted with any other goals than the crushing of Hungarian resistance, the preservation of their own power base and the recuing of their prestige in mind, but in subsequent meetings, even in private, great efforts were made to recast the revolution as a fascist, bloodthirsty coup. In a meeting between representatives of the Bulgarian, Czech, Romanian, Hungarian and Soviet communist parties in the first week of January 1957, the revised narrative of what had occurred in Hungary was already doing the rounds. The revolution then had been a fascist counter-revolution, and the Hungarian people were apparently learning that they had been saved from its terrible crimes. The following extract is a bit long, but it gives us an invaluable window into the way of thinking at the time. Such a primary source deserves our attention if we're to properly appreciate how all-consuming the Soviet propaganda machine was. During the minutes of the meeting held in Budapest on the 6th of January 1957, it was noted that The Hungarian economy had made successful progress on the socialist road of development. It was this development that was thwarted by the attack of the counter-revolutionary forces. At the moment, after having repressed the counter-revolution, the socialist economy of the Hungarian People's Republic has started developing again and is showing clear signs of strength. In the past few years, the countries of the socialist camp have fulfilled the economic plans with success and achieved new results in enhancing the welfare of the people. There are clear signs of development in culture, science and technology. Under the mighty banner of Marxism-Leninism, the peoples of these countries have further strengthened their unity with their communist and workers' parties and with their governments. The participants of the meeting unanimously concluded that as a result of the efforts of the Hungarian workers, with the leadership of the Hungarian Revolutionary Workers and Peasants Government, and with the support of the Soviet Army, the attempts to eliminate the socialist elements of the Hungarian people and their people's democratic system were successfully prevented. The danger of establishing a fascist dictatorship in Hungary was eliminated, and the people prevented the aggressive imperialist and counter-revolutionary circles from turning Hungary into the storm centre of a new war in Europe. They firmly shattered any attempts on the part of the imperialist circles to break the unity of the socialist camp. The representatives of the communist and workers' parties and the governments participating at the meeting all expressed their satisfaction with the normalisation of the Hungarian political situation and economic life. All the healthy and democratic forces of the country, led by the working class, are making united efforts to support the Hungarian Revolutionary Workers and Peasants Government and the Hungarian Socialist Workers' Party support the policy and the economic course of the government and the party, and take an active and strong line against the anti-popular elements, which, following the guidance of imperialist propaganda, conduct proactive and disruptive activities among the population. The Hungarian peasantry continues to work calmly, having rejected any attempt to be misled by the provocations of the imperialist and counter-revolutionary propaganda, and having given an adequate response in the Hungarian villages to the attempts at restoring the landowning system. 
those Hungarian workers who were misled by the demagogic, provocative and nationalist slogans of the counter-revolution are becoming more and more convinced that they have been fooled, and they realise that, for all this deception, for all of the counter-revolutionary activities, the country now must pay with the blood of the best men, of the people who fell victim to the terror of the counter-revolutionary gangs. The working people of Hungary are realising more and more how fatal the route was down which the adversary forces opposing the cause of socialism and the socialist system wanted to lead them. The Hungarian working class, the peasantry and the intelligentsia can assess very well the situation of the country and the objectives set for the Hungarian people and the revolutionary workers and peasants government. The Hungarian workers understand more and more now that the increase in the standard of living and the strengthening of the people's democratic system can only be ensured by restoring the normal economic situation and production, by the development of the economy of the country, by enhancing the productivity in industry and agriculture, by decreasing the costs of production, and by socialist accumulation. (sighs) Good grief. You know, I don't know about you, and this is a bit off the cuff here, but after having endured so much propaganda over the last several episodes, I really am getting a wee bit sick of it. This is one of the reasons why I'm kind of looking forward to covering the Suez Crisis, because at least then, even though the Western states tried to put their own spin on things, they didn't refer to these empty devices like socialist workers, peasants' party, all these like memos like these that would have taken several hours for someone to draw up, and yet they must have known deep down that it was all lies, but... They just did it anyway because that was what they were told to do. It's mind-boggling to me that basically everyone was pretending at this stage. They were pretending and they would go on pretending for the rest of their lives that what had happened in Hungary was a really, really bad thing with terrible consequences had the revolution succeeded. And I suppose if you're a communist bureaucrat in any of the Eastern Bloc countries, it would have been bad for you because the revolution might have spread to your country and you might have lost your job, but... When Hungarians themselves tried to paint it as a a good thing that they were saved from what happened in this revolution and they were saved from Imre Naj by the wisdom of the Soviets and the Soviet Gordons, it just... I know, I know I'm preaching to the choir to you guys here, but it just... it, it gets a bit much after a while. There's only so much you can read before being desensitized becomes being sick of it all. And I'm on the verge now of getting very sick of reading all this propaganda. If I have to read any more, I'm probably going to go crazy. But let's continue on with the story. So the meeting with several leaders of the Eastern satellites demonstrated that the Soviet Union was making efforts to draw these states closer to its orbit after the tumultuous events of Budapest. The impact of the revolution upon Hungary's neighbours is worth mentioning, particularly since one of the driving reasons behind the Soviet intention to crush Naja's government was the fear that the Hungarian liberal message was spreading. We're also drawn to the strange fact I mentioned earlier as well, regarding Imre Naja's decision to accept asylum in the Yugoslav embassy in Budapest. After years of having alienated Tito, the Soviet policy was now in the process of trying to warm to him, but surely this latest act of independence would be frowned upon? The lifeline to Naja's government came through the former Hungarian ambassador to Yugoslavia, who still had useful contacts in both countries. Through this man... Naj was able to communicate with the Yugoslav ambassador, Dalibor Soldatic, who offered him sanctuary. We should not have any doubts about Naj's behaviour. The bravery in the face of threats upon his life he was later to display demonstrate that Naj was far from a coward. So why delay the inevitable and refrain from going down with the sinking ship of his old regime? 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It seems that Naj believed he could get exercise a level of influence over Qatar's new government, if only he could find a way to avoid arrest. From this position of influence, perhaps he could save his old friends and prevent the kind of revenge campaigns from occurring, which many in his government so feared. He had, in previous addresses with his colleagues, urged those that could flee to flee the country. This explanation goes some way towards explaining Naj's decision to accept asylum in Budapest's Yugoslav Island, but what about Tito himself, the Yugoslav leader? Why did he let Naj stay in the embassy? Well, let's investigate. In the first few days of November, while Soviet forces were advancing towards Hungary, Khrushchev was making something of a campaign trail across the communist states in a bid to ensure that all the governments of Eastern Europe approved of the invasion of Hungary again. We saw in the last episode that Khrushchev visited Poland and received an affirmative response from Gomułka, but the first secretary also visited Yugoslavia and talked with Tito face-to-face from the evening of the 2nd of November to the early hours of the 3rd of November. Even before Tito had met with Khrushchev, he had been informed of a conversation between the Yugoslav ambassador and one of Naj's aides on the 1st of that month. In the course of that conversation, the Hungarian and Yugoslav statesmen had talked and established the bare bones of a plan, which would come to fruition when Naj was offered asylum in the early hours of the 4th of November. Armed with knowledge of this conversation, Tito told Khrushchev about it, and Khrushchev refrained from launching any kind of rebuke or criticism of the policy, as he would later do. The question we must ask ourselves, then, is if the Soviets later reacted so badly to Tito's permission to allow Naj into the embassy, Why didn't Khrushchev, who had been informed of this idea the previous day, make some kind of objection when he had Tito in front of him? In her article examining this question, the historian Johanna Granville makes a number of observations on the issue. First, in his meeting with Khrushchev, Tito apparently mentioned only some minor Hungarian officials, including Naj's aide, and not Naj himself, so perhaps Khrushchev did not realise that Naj might also seek asylum in the Yugoslav embassy. Second, the most pressing concern for Khrushchev and Malenkov at the time was getting Tito's support for the intervention and his promise to try to persuade Naj to publicly resign and state his support for the new Qatar government. 
It was clear to Yugoslavs that Khrushchev had already decided to intervene, and he merely wanted Tito's approval, not his advice or permission. Khrushchev needed Tito's help in making the Soviet invasion look more legitimate to the international community, which would then facilitate the normalisation in Hungary. In addition, since Tito had been surprisingly supportive of the Soviet invasion, Khrushchev evidently assumed that, even if Naj sought asylum in the Yugoslav embassy, Tito would quickly turn Naj over to the Soviet authorities if they asked. This was indicated in the telegram of the 4th of November, in which Khrushchev instructed the Soviet ambassador to Yugoslavia to tell the deputy head of the Yugoslav government that... As far as the further sojourn of Naj and his group in the embassy, excesses could occur with them, not only by the reaction but also by the revolutionary elements. Thus, bearing in mind that the Hungarian revolutionary worker-peasant government, headed by Kadar, does not have security organs at present, it would be expedient to deliver Naj and his group to our troops for transport to the revolutionary worker-peasant government. Later, in explaining to Khrushchev why he had granted asylum to Naj, Tito cited the sheer speed of events and absence of detailed information. The problem in the final analysis is a result of our conversation, although because of the events in Hungary, things developed differently than we expected, Tito wrote. The conversation between the Yugoslav ambassador and his Hungarian friend had already taken place before the meeting at Brioni, where Tito and Khrushchev had met over the 2nd to 3rd of November, and Tito did inform Khrushchev of it. Thus it would appear that Khrushchev was the one to blame for the initial presence of Naj and his allies in the Yugoslav embassy, since he did not think to tell Tito that the offer of political asylum to Naj was unacceptable. He also did not give Tito a reasonable amount of time in which to persuade Naj to make the declaration supporting Kadar. As Tito had promised in the course of their earlier meeting to work on Naj, this was hardly possible in the space of time between Khrushchev's farewell to Tito and his approval for the invasion of Budapest. Compromised by Khrushchev's speedy timetable, Tito may well have believed that he could work on Naj while he languished in his embassy, and maybe even score some brownie points as he did so, but it is also partially true that events moved ahead of Tito's calculations. It could also be added that the last thing Tito wanted was to be placed in a position which would call his friendship with Khrushchev into question. With Naj at his mercy, it would have been impossible for the sake of Yugoslav prestige to simply hand Naj over to Kadar's eager hands. Yet this was exactly what Khrushchev insisted upon, with increasing bitterness and anger as November progressed. As one of Tito's aides put it at the time, they, the Soviet leaders, have decided to sling mud at Yugoslavia as the organiser of the counter-revolution if we don't hand Imre Naj and the others over to them. But if we do hand them over, they will point to us as a country which does not keep its word and which nobody should depend upon. In the event, Naj would stay in the embassy until the 22nd of November, after receiving Kadar's word that he would be allowed safe passage. Kadar's word was worthless, and Naj was captured by the Soviet forces which awaited him. He and several of his allies were whisked out of the country, enabling Tito to breathe a sigh of relief. He had stood strong in defence of Yugoslavia's national rights, though it did come at the expense of the once relatively warm relations between he and Khrushchev. Johanna Granville wrote that when it came to the question of Naj, difficult though it was, Tito knew that he would have to be seen to stand up to Soviet blustering. 
Granville wrote that Tito valued Yugoslavia's reputation as a responsible, sovereign state and was convinced that Yugoslavia should honour the principles of international law as befits such a state. It is noteworthy that Tito kept the Brioni meeting with Khrushchev secret from the Yugoslav public for several days to avoid tarnishing Yugoslavia's reputation. Once Naja's presence in his embassy was an accomplished fact, Tito took the concept of political asylum seriously. In his February 1957 letter to the Central Committee of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, Tito maintained that he could not violate his word and simply give up these people, citing the Yugoslav constitution on the issue of political asylum. We should also consider that Tito was grappling here with the notion of realism in the foreign policy of communist states. The principles of such an approach to foreign affairs dictated that the author should act in their interests regardless of ideological chains or bias. By holding Naj, he had both diffused Budapest by lopping off the head of its leader, and he had appealed to Western sympathies by standing up to Moscow. We should not underrate Tito's diplomatic skill in this regard, especially since he had spent the last several years standing up to Stalin in the name of his Balkan workers' paradise, so why not against Khrushchev? By trotting out the usual reasons regarding his state's rights, etc., Tito could, in effect, raise the profile of Yugoslavia significantly by having it appear to stand against Soviet aggression, when in reality Tito wished to do no such thing. Tito's flip-flopping between the two world systems of the time in years past was something to behold, and while he may have groaned when he learned of the Naj situation, he can't have seen no opportunities for it within his regime, lest he would have handed Naj over far earlier than he'd eventually did. In Tito's world, people learned what he wanted them to learn, and just like he covered up the meeting with Khrushchev for several days, Tito wouldn't have found it overtly challenging to quietly expel Naj from the embassy as soon as he learned of the development. That he did not speaks volumes about his position in the world. While Tito would moan about his country's constitution demanding a certain policy, he had been perfectly happy, for example, to infringe upon this same constitution's declarations on the entitlement of his subjects to certain human rights when he was chucking several of them into the infamous gulag-style jail at Goli Atok. To me, the event of Naj seeking asylum in the Yugoslav embassy reeks of sheer opportunism dressed up in a faux concern for sovereignty and national rights. Tito may have been unaware of Naj's inherent stubbornness, which prevented Tito from gaining any kind of useful concessions from him during the Hungarians' three-week stay in the embassy. Continuing with our examination of the revolution's impact upon foreign affairs, it's worth examining the Chinese angle, which had proved quite important during the Polish spring of the previous week. During the course of the Polish and Hungarian revolts, Zhou Enlai had made it plain that neither he nor Mao Zedong wished to see expressions of national communism crushed. The limits of this policy, though, were found in Hungary. While Poland did not go too far, Imre Naj was presented as the boogeyman of stable, reliable communism. He was presented as incompetent and incapable when he failed to prevent the massacre in the Communist Party HQ on the 31st of October, and the Chinese certainly understood that dangers would be on the horizon if the Hungarian example given by Naj was aped by his neighbours in Eastern Europe. We are given an interesting concluding note on the Chinese angle in January 1957, by which time Janusz Kadar had been securely established and the Hungarian revolt was merely a maligned memory. 
Zhou Enlai's purpose was to reinforce the legitimacy of the Eastern Bloc through these visits, thus granting a great boon to the Soviets in the process. During his tour of Eastern Europe, where he also visited Poland and expressed support for Gomułka, Zhou Enlai led a deputation to meet with Kadar's government on the 16th of January 1957, where Enlai captured the different light in which Gomułka and Naja's regimes had been viewed in Beijing. He said, On my return journey, I will make visits to Afghanistan and Nepal. The Hungarian question will also arise during my meeting with Nehru. We also spoke about the Hungarian question with our comrades in the Polish leadership, and we told them that the characteristics of the Hungarian and Polish events were different. Gomułka's leadership is fundamentally correct, while events in Hungary played out quite differently. Imre Nagy's traitorousness left its mark on the Hungarian situation. Janusz Kadar could only save the socialist state in Hungary by opposing Imre Nagy and with Soviet help. We have told the Poles and the leaders in Asia that the Hungarian government cannot solve the problems unless it employs the methods it is currently using. Eisenhower told Nehru that he does not want war to break out because of the events in Hungary. He realises and accepts the fact that Hungary will remain in the socialist camp. The South Asian countries recognise that if the Soviet troops had not intervened, Hungary would now be in the Western camp and this would represent a considerable risk of war breaking out. It was only with the help of Soviet troops that Hungary managed to stay in the socialist camp. Zhou Enlai had hit the socialist nail on the head. Imre Nagy had managed to be both an impotent ruler and to go too far in his efforts to modernise communism and give it a national face. Gomulka had done this right, and thus he received some pats on the head. But Nagy's example was now the warning, the stark reminder of what could go wrong, and of course, he was also the malignant threat, which now had to be guarded against. This malignant threat was languishing in Soviet custody in January 1957. And in the next episode, our final one of part one of 1956, we conclude Imre Nagy's story, so I hope you'll join me for that. Until then, history, friends and patrons, my name is Zach and you've been listening to the Patreon-exclusive series 1956, episode 1.14. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.